Open your Bibles with me to Galatians. It's in the New Testament, second half of your Bible. It's kind of one of those smaller epistles that might be kind of hard to find in there. Don't be afraid to consult your table of contents in your Bible. There's two types of people in the world. I feel like you can go so many places. <laughs> There's those who read the introduction of the book and those who skip straight to chapter one. That's not where you thought I was going to go. <laughs> but I think, it's, I think that's generally true. Uh, it's probably really not a helpful way to divide the world, but maybe it's one of the ways that we can divide the world if we need another one. But I wonder about you, when you read a book, what do you do? Do you open to the introduction or do you just, you're like, I just want to get to what I came for. Let's go to chapter one. I, some of y'all haven't read a book since your, <laughs> since your English teacher made you. And even then you probably just read the cliff notes. Some of y'all can't remember the last time you actually read a book. So I'm just talking to those who have read books. I didn't know this. I was kind of looking up whether I should say preface or introduction. I, I, I love reading books, and I realized this week that there's really differences between an introduction, a forward, a prologue, and a preface. Who knew? So there's a lot of things. I'm, I'm definitely the guy, though, who reads those things. If I've picked up a book, I, I, I like to go through the forward and the introduction. You can get some of your, your best nuggets from the book in, in those pages, it, there's a lot of neat things that people tell you as they're introducing you to their work. I think of a book's introduction as, as like the entryway to a house. I mean, when you go into an entryway, it's meant to bring you into the place. It's meant to acquaint you with the place or for a book, acquaint you with the author and his goals. In a house, when you come into the entryway or into a church building, you come into the entryway and you're adjusting to the temperature, you take in the different smells you get an idea of where you are. A, a book I recently started reading called The Death of Porn has a really compelling introduction. And I, I want to give this to you. I, I really could have probably gone to any book. This is one I've just started recently. So I, I, these, this set of sentences are so good. And it's specifically about pornography and, and the battle of that for Christians. Um, the guy who wrote this book had just been going through, you know, why, why is it worth fighting? Like what's, what's happening in the fight? to be um, sexually holy, to follow after Christ sexually. I want to read this portion. This is in the introduction. This is why you should read introductions of books. I think I've got it on the screen for you. Here's what it says. This is the, the author. He says, here's what I want you to remember along the way, throughout the book. Here's what I want you to remember along the way. Your battle against porn isn't about porn. It isn't about sex. It isn't about willpower. Your battle is about hope. It's about your heart believing that in spite of your many sins, like my many sins, God rejoices to give you a future you can scarcely dream of. That's already so good. L listen to this last sentence. You'll win your fight by believing that God's love for you is too great to be limited to what you deserve. Man, doesn't that fill you a little bit? Doesn't that make your spirit flutter a little bit that, that our God loves us in such a great way that what we deserve doesn't limit his love. Man, praise God, that's his kind of love for us. I'm glad I didn't skip over that. 
in that book. I'm glad I read the introduction to enjoy that and to worship God, even through this teacher's words. Most of Paul's letters, you're like, what are you doing? Why are we talking about introductions? Most of Paul's letters, like Galatians, start with an introduction. And usually we are glad we didn't, we'll gladly skip over those. And I would say, if you don't, you're glad you didn't. A tendency for us is to just gloss over them and just think of it as something unnecessary, something unimportant. This is what he always, it's just how he starts his letters, so it doesn't matter. Well, today we're starting Galatians. We'll be in Galatians for a little while together, church, so buckle up. Uh, we're going to be in here until the new year. And with, with Galatians, these first five verses are Paul's introduction that are worth our time. We could dismiss them and think Paul says hello at the beginning of every letter. But it's good to remember that nothing in Scripture is disposable. Nothing is, is throwawayable. It's all there for a reason. So what is the introduction to Galatians 1 there for? Let's look. I want to read Galatians 1, verses 1 through 5 with you. Let's, let's do that together. Galatians 1, 1 through 5. This is what God's Word says. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Verses 1 and 2 are going to unlock some context for us that's going to help us understand the rest of the book. And right up front, right there in verses 1 and 2, we find out who the author is and what his authority is as the author and who the recipients are. That's a lot of information that's helpful for us as we're going to read through the rest of Galatians. We see in verses 1 and 2, Paul, an apostle, and then a clarification. What, what kind of apostle? Not one from men nor through man, but through whom? Jesus Christ. And God the Father, he's sent from God, who raised him from the dead, who, who, God the Father who raised Jesus from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me. That, that is who sent, verse 2, to the, to the churches of Galatia. The letter is from Paul and was probably written around 50 AD. And there's actually some, there's actually some significant debate between scholars about exactly which part of Galatia this was written to and the exact timing of its writing. And the sides of that debate don't really change any of the interpretation or how we should understand the text, but nerds like to argue, so they got something here, right? Something to argue over, and I mean that with no offense to nerds. Uh, but it is, <laughs> it is clearly written to the church in Asia Minor. We love the truth, so it's, the pursuit of truth is worth finding. But here, it doesn't change how we r read this. It doesn't matter if it's North Galatia or South Galatia. The, the, the truth is the same. The context doesn't change how we see that among those two places and that time. So around 50 AD to Galatia, and it's written in, to the church in Asia Minor. Galatia was in Asia Minor, which is now in modern-day Turkey. Here's a map. If, if you don't know where Turkey is on this map, then it doesn't matter. This map doesn't matter to you. But that red spot is where Galatia was. That is now modern-day Turkey. You see Europe above it. Um, so that's, that gives you an idea. Jerusalem, uh, Israel, it would be below where that's at. That gives you an idea of, of just kind of geographic context. So time and place. And in this, in this, Paul includes that the letter is also from the brothers who are with him. 
So Paul is writing, and he's writing saying, hey, I'm writing, Paul an apostle, and all the brothers who are with me. That's who this is from. He doesn't identify them. He doesn't give names. But in this, in, in saying this is from the brothers too, it, it expresses that the message in this letter isn't just coming from the outsider, strange mind of Paul, right? It kind of says, hey, this is accepted. The, the brothers, the church, my local church is agreeing with me in this. So it's not just me. It's a part of his credibility that he's saying it's, it's Paul and the brothers who are with me. He's saying this letter is coming from a community in agreement about the situation, about this theology, about who Christ is and what the gospel is. And so him mentioning that this is from Paul and the brothers who are with him, it really highlights the importance of the local church to keep us sound. It's a small thing here, but, but it's meaningful. As he's trying to build his credibility, which he's doing in this introduction, he's, he's specifically saying this local church is here to keep us sound. And for him, it establishes the soundness of doctrine that other believers, other established believers are agreeing with him in this. And so if Paul needs the local church to help keep him sound and say, we need the local church for me, how much more for us? How much more for us who are not apostles to say, we need the local church? The situation they were writing to, Paul and the brothers, it, it was for the Galatians who needed some correcting. The Galatian church had fallen into the belief that the gospel of Jesus Christ needed to be supplemented by works and law to save so they'd come under this false gospel. They fell into those beliefs. And I'll give you two real reasons that we're going to see through the rest of Galatians. One is just the natural drift of the world. The natural drift of the world is towards works. Sin in the world around us, it wants to pull us in. We are in a sinful world. So it, if we just go, we will drift. That's one reason. It's one major reason. And it's a major reason not just for the Galatians, but it's a major reason for every Christian in every generation. So, yes, for us today, too, natural drift of, of sinfulness in the world. But the other one was the, the teaching of false teachers. They fell into false beliefs because of false teachers. And these two traps we should be on guard for today. We, we should be looking for where are we naturally drifting and where are we hearing false teaching? And the way we know that is by coming back to God's word. That's how, that's how we settle that, is we keep coming back to God's word. What does God's word say? So here, Paul notes his commission as an apostle at the very beginning of the letter, as if to say, whoever else you're listening to, whichever of these false teachers, whichever, whatever you're drifting into, whatever you're listening to, I'm the one you should be listening to. God has sent me, not man, man has not sent me to you, God has sent me to you for your good so that you can be doctrinally sound, so that you can know him, so that you can be saved. We'll actually learn a lot about Paul as he builds his credibility for his Galatian audience in chapters 1 and 2. That's what we're going to see a lot in chapters 1 and 2 is him telling them who he is, how God called him, how God has changed him, how God has used him. So he's developing, hey, here's why my apostleship is true. It's his testimony. His apostleship was a position and a calling of ambassadorship. He was an ambassador for God. He represented and spoke for Christ to the church. His apostleship carried authority. So what he's saying to the Galatians here is, I have authority. So as, as you read this letter, read it 
as one who has authority from God to correct you and to lead you. And so church, now as we read this letter, how should we read it? We should read it in the same way. We should read it as this is God's word and we should submit and respect God's word as we would expect the Galatians to have done. That we, we respect his apostleship. We respect God speaking through him in the same way. His apostleship carried authority because it wasn't from some dudes that said, yeah, Paul's legit. His apostleship, his commission was from God himself. Paul was writing to them on behalf of the living God. That's what he says here. That's what he says in verse 1. I'm writing to you on behalf of the living God, Jesus Christ, who was raised from the dead. Jesus, who was raised from the dead and is alive, has sent him. The result of this is that Paul is going to approach the church with the authority and confidence of an ambassador of Christ. Now, listen, church, none of us... None of us are apostles like Paul. That, that was for the early church. It was the people who were with Jesus, who he invested in. Paul is going to explain why he inherits apostleship, apostleship, why he is in that in the next couple of chapters. So none of us are apostles like Paul, but we have been commissioned like Paul, not by men, but by God. All of us have been commissioned Christians, every one of us. You might know Matthew 28, the Great Commission. Go, therefore, making disciples in all the nations, baptizing them, teaching them. You may have heard that, that Great Commission. If you're new to the church or if one of your first times being in the church, you may not have, and that's fine. But God has commissioned every believer to go and make disciples. I love John 20, 21, where Jesus said to his disciples, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. We are all sent into the mission field. We each have a commission. And like Paul, that commission was not from men. It's not Mark Navy said today that I'm supposed to be sharing the gospel. So that's good. I can go share the gospel. No, the living God has commissioned you to share the gospel. He has commissioned you to be a disciple maker, to introduce those who are dead and dying, lost in their sin to the hope of a living God and to help others Enjoy and live in the beauty of Christ. We are called to be disciple makers, and we should approach our commission with the same vigor and authority as Paul. We should claim the same authority. God has sent me. God has sent me to this park to share the gospel today. God has sent me to this school to share the gospel today. God has sent me to this workplace to share the gospel today. God has sent me to gas pump number six this morning to share the gospel today. We have that same commission. We are ambassadors today. And if the Holy Spirit dwells in you, as he does in every believer, then you are called by Jesus to share the gospel with the world. It's that simple. Jesus, who was raised from the dead and is alive, has sent you. Let's keep looking at verse 3. This is verse 3. It says this. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So all this, already we've seen who the audience is, who the writer is, and now we get in kind of to the meat of this introduction, uh, of this greeting, this salutation, and, and it's a blessing. Paul is writing out, basically here, writing out a blessing over them. He's asking for God's grace and peace to be theirs. That's what he's saying. I, I want God's grace and God's peace to be yours, Galatian church, you believers, 
grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse three, we're reminded of God's grace. We're really gonna really dig into God's grace here, and we're gonna see how the peace of God is, is really a part of the grace of God. So God's grace is, is what we see here. If you're taking notes, God's grace. Paul, Paul's really taking a normal greeting model of his day. Like, this is how they would have taught people to write letters in, in ancient times, in, in Paul's day. And he's making this, this normal greeting distinctly Christian. He's taking something that everyone in the culture would have done, and he's doing it in a way that points people to Christ. He's sending it to this church in a distinctly Christian way. The Apostle Paul includes this kind of blessing in all the greetings of his letters. I mean, Romans 1.7 is a good example. Romans 1.7 says to those, all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, look at this line, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And you're going to find that line, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ in 1 Corinthians 1.3, 2 Corinthians 1.2, Ephesians 1.2, Philippians 1.2. You get the idea. We could do a couple more. You get the idea. He includes that in his letters, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So why? Was it just habit? Was it just cordial? Was he just Christianizing something to add on, to tag on? Nothing in Scripture is wasted. Nothing's there on accident. And when I was in school, it was always said, if the professor writes it twice, or if the teacher writes it twice, you write it down too. Or if he says it twice, you write it down. She says it twice, you write it down. Well, here it is. It's said over and over and over. So it must be important. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This blessing serves the same purpose as major league infielders taking ground balls in practice, right? I mean, it's something that they've done for years over and over and over, but it's the fundamentals. It's fundamental. The Christian life is one of grace and peace, and it's something that the church needed to be reminded of every time. Paul wanted to remind the church every time he was talking to them that as a Christian, they needed grace and peace from God. You, you can't miss it. You're not going to be a professional baseball player if you can't field a ground ball, so you keep doing it. This is important. This is step one. It's fundamentals. Grace and peace in the Christian life. These fruits of the Spirit. This is what God gives. Grace and peace. If Paul wants to give a glimpse of his heart, if he wants to welcome the Galatians into the entryway of his heart and mind in this intro, he's going to share with them his prayer for them. What is, what is he praying for them? As he remembers the Galatians in his prayers, is he not praying for God's grace and peace for them? He's, he's sharing with them what he hopes God will give them. And, and this, is, this is why I know Paul is praying this for the Galatian church, is that there is truly nothing better that he could give them than the grace and peace that comes from God. There's truly no better gift that Paul could give the Galatians than the grace and peace that comes from God. So he's praying that for them. And you might say, yeah, well, paying off my debts would be, would be pretty good. Or giving me my youth back, giving me, you know, let me step back a few years. Or, you know, giving me the, the girlfriend or boyfriend of my dreams. You know, all those things would be fine. And yes, all those things are good. Yeah, we love those things. But, they're nothing compared to the grace and peace that comes from God. 
The grace and peace that comes from God is the best thing. The grace of God, so, okay, Mark, sure, they're the, great, they're, they're the best thing, but what are, you, what are you saying? You're just saying words. Like, those are just Christian words. Like, that's fine. I hear those in churches, and we sing them in some songs, but, like, what are you saying? Well, we, grace is one we, sh- we, we should really know. If you don't know grace, what is grace? Then here, here's an easy definition. It's unmerited favor. Grace is unmerited favor. Now, you can merit favor. You can earn favor, and that's great. But what's better is unmerited favor. <laughs> when you've done nothing to earn favor, and that's what grace is. God is gracious. He gives unmerited favor. And this grace, this favor from God is a cornucopia of blessings for us. I mean, it's overflowing. It's abundant. It's, it's just coming out. That his, his grace is so good for us. When you think about favor, I think about as a student, you desire the favor of your teacher. I had a, I, had a, <laughs> I think it was chemistry that I was in. And every time I would get my like last grade before the report card came out, and every time it would be either an 89 or a 90. And on every report card, it always showed up as a 93. <laughs> I, had, I had favor with that teacher, and it was unmerited. I have no idea why. Maybe there was something unmerited. I don't know. But that's, I mean, why would you want favor with the teacher? You might bump your grade from a 92 to a 93. As an employee, you desire the favor of your boss, because, I don't know, maybe, maybe it gets you a raise. But the favor of God brings us gain we can't even imagine. Like, there's things we can't imagine that the favor of God brings us. And that's awesome. Like, we should want the things that the favor of God brings us. But what's hard to grasp is that there's things that the favor of God brings us that we can't even imagine, that we can't see. I think there's sometimes, and you guys, you'll know this, and maybe the older you are, the more you know this, is that there's things that God does graciously in your life that you don't see till years and years and years and years and years later. You couldn't have imagined that that was grace from God. And now you look back and you're like, that was just beautiful grace from God. The grace of God brings gain we cannot imagine, but namely, it brings us the gain of eternal hope in Jesus Christ. Namely, it brings us the gain of relationship with God, who we in our sin broke. We broke relationship, and God in his favor restores relationship with us. Look at how Paul describes grace to Timothy. 2 Timothy 1. This will be on the screen for you. 2 Timothy 1, verses 8 and 9. He says, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling. Check this out. Not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. He saved us because of his purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. This grace, this grace right here that we see in 2 Timothy, this grace that was given in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and by this grace alone are we saved. And we are saved for his purpose, his own purpose. It's God's favor that brings our salvation. It's his unmerited favor that brings our salvation. We couldn't earn it. There's nothing we could have done to earn it. We couldn't merit our way into salvation. We couldn't justify ourselves before God. But God looked at us in our sin and in our misery and said, I will do this thing for you. I will provide salvation for you. I will do this thing you don't deserve because of my favor on you. 
And that flows out of our salvation into every part of our life. When we understand that our salvation is purchased by unmerited favor, by God's grace to us, when we recognize that, then it doesn't just stay in this pocket of salvation. <laughs> like, we're not like, oh, that's a cool, cool grace thing that God did for us. That is an overflowing flood of appreciation and gratitude in every other part of our life. There's nothing untouched by the grace that God gives us in our salvation. His grace in general, his common grace to the whole world. As Christians, no part of our life escapes the blessing of God's favor. And one of the beautiful examples of this is peace. That peace for the Christian is a blessing of grace. Peace for the Christian is a, a blessing of grace. So let's define biblical peace here. We define grace. Let's define biblical peace here. The peace of God is an unshakable security and rest. The peace of God is an unshakable security and rest. Because, because of God's unmerited favor that secures my salvation, he has done the work. He has secured my salvation. Because of that, look back at 2 Timothy 1. We can share in suffering for the gospel with peace. We, we, can, we can suffer. We can go through hard things. We can face every struggle of life with supernatural peace. I don't use the word supernatural often because I think our culture has used it and twisted it. But the peace from God is supernatural. The life of the Christian is supernatural. We shouldn't be afraid of that. But there is a supernatural peace in following after Christ and receiving his grace, enjoying his grace. Our peace is an unshakable security and rest, knowing that our eternity is secure in the hands of Christ. Because our good in this life and our salvation in the next life is guaranteed by the favor of God on his children, we can be at peace. He guarantees our good in this life and our salvation in the next life for the next life to his children so we can be at peace. What do we have to fear? What do we have to feel anxious over? And God loves to give this peace-inducing grace to us. God loves to give grace that brings peace. He loves to give grace that brings the fruit of the Spirit. Isaiah 30 says that the Lord longs to be gracious to you. Isn't that a sweet phrase to think through? The Lord longs to be gracious to you. Because Paul loves the Galatian church, he calls on God to shower the Galatians with grace and peace. Paul already knows that this grace and peace have been provided to the Galatians. That's, that's the purpose of verse 4. Jesus is the prince of peace. He is the means of grace. Jesus is a gift to us. That's what we see in, in verse 3 and 4. So let's read that again. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. Think about this from verse four. The greatest thing God ever gave mankind was himself. There's a lot of really great things that God has given to us. And a lot of that is by means of human intelligence, that he's made us able to invent and be creative as he is creative, to be generous as he is generous. I think about, man, how much I enjoy that this building is air conditioned right now. 
He's given us some really great things. But the, the greatest thing God ever gave mankind was himself. God's greatest gift to humanity is himself. Had God given us life and then withheld himself, our lives would be without purpose, and without beauty, without grace and peace, without joy or hope. And I think that's offensive. I think if you're here right now and you don't believe in God, if you, if you consider yourself an atheist or you're not sure, if, if you're agnostic, you're like, no, I, without God, I, there's still beauty and purpose and grace and peace. You misunderstand who God is. I don't mean to be offensive, but it's just what Scripture says. That, that the best thing for us is God himself. And he gives beauty and purpose to everything else in this life. Jesus, who gave himself for us, as verse 4 says, is God's gift. So we've seen God's grace, and we see God's gift here. Jesus is God's great gift to us. And let's just stop. I mean, look at the words of, of verse 4. Let's just stop and praise God that, that his will is our salvation. He, he wills our salvation. He wants our salvation, church. If you've been saved, he wants your salvation. He wants our deliverance. I think sometimes we need to stop and smell the roses. And this is one really fragrant rose right here. A God full of grace and mercy and patience. We have a God who is good and kind. I mean, we're not... I'm hesitating whether I should say this, so you, you'll tell me later. We're not Luke Skywalker trying to save a universe from our evil dad, Darth Vader. Our God is good. Our Father is good. We're not trying to convince our Father to be kind. Sometimes we get that image in our head that if we could just convince God to be good here, he would be good here. If we, if, if we, if we could just convince him to be a little generous here, maybe then. But God is already completely kind. He's already so gracious to you. And he wants, he longs to be gracious to you. His will from before time began was to be kind to us. His will is to give us good gifts, the best of which was his son Jesus, is his son Jesus. And I want you to be sure and certain, church. I want you to be sure and certain Jesus is a gift to us. You don't deserve Jesus. You haven't earned him. You didn't bring him here. He came here. He gave himself. He gave himself for us. Jesus was not forced to die. He gave himself. Do you see that in verse 4? He was a willing lamb for the slaughter as a gift for the guilty. Every once in a while, we need to reset ourselves and remember that we were the guilty church. And we are, we are the guilty. And it's only by the blood of Christ that our guilt is, is cast away out of the Father's memory. It's only by the blood of Christ that our, our shame is covered, our sin is covered. Every one of us is guilty. I don't have to stand here and convince you that. I really believe that I, I don't have to like 
give you some fancy apologetics why you should know you're a sinner. I really believe that every person knows they've done wrong. Probably every person in here watching online, you know you've done wrong. You know that you're guilty. You know you're a wrongdoer. I know I am. So a perfect God, consider this, a perfect God created you and me to be with him, and our response, our response is no thanks. Hey, cool, thanks for making us. Thanks for being perfect and good and kind and stuff, but I'd rather do these things. If I could have something else, that'd be great, God. What a response. What a, what a crazy thing. So God created us to be with him. Our response was no thanks. And that's a good understanding of our, our sin. Our sin is rejection of God. So we rejected God. We broke his laws. And him being just decided death was an appropriate consequence. And we're like, yes, God, if you're just, then yes, that is, that is the appropriate consequence. Death in this life and death in the next. It's total death. That's the consequence. If we wanted separation from God, he would give it to us. It's kind of God saying, here, have it. You're saying, no thanks, you want these things, have it. And what goes along with it is death. But God, Jesus, is the way and the truth and the life. He is, the, he is, he is in himself able to save us. God never stopped pursuing us, even in saying this, even in giving us what we wanted, and even in giving us to our sin, he never stopped pursuing us. Every page of the Old Testament, the part before Jesus, every part of the Old Testament was that God wanted us to be with him. And that's, that's the message of the Old Testament, is that God wanted us to be with him. And he made so many ways, and he showed so much patience for us to be with him. He gave us a law as a guardian to guide us back to him, but we couldn't keep the law. The law that was meant to protect us really ended up condemning us, but God had a plan for our salvation. He knew that would happen. He had a plan for our salvation. He knew that the law would be too hard for us, that we're so weak and so broken and so unable that we couldn't do that. We couldn't, we couldn't uphold the law. So then, while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. While we were still too weak, while we could not keep the law, Christ died for the ungodly. Feel the weight of that. He didn't, he, didn't, he didn't come in at the right time, die for the righteous. He didn't, came, he didn't come to, to heal the healthy. <laughs> he came for the sick. He died for the ungodly. We just recognized we're all guilty. We're all the ungodly. So he came to save us. He was delivered over to death for our trespasses and was raised to life for our justification so that we could stand before the Father, so that we could have that relationship. Because, because Jesus lived a perfect life, he did what we couldn't do. He fulfilled the law. Because Jesus is completely God and completely man, his death was able to substitute for ours. He took our punishment on his shoulders. He died the death we deserved. Because he rose from the grave, he defeated death and won our eternity and our relationship with him forever. And that is a gift that was given to us. The free gift of God. What a gift. What a gift. 
What a gift. Jesus gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. There's so much. There's so much. We've only got so much time. There's so much. But isn't this age evil? Hasn't this age always been evil? I mean, he's saying, I mean, this is, there's, the, there's the present age, there's this present evil age, and there's the age to come. And he has, he came for us to save us from this present evil age and to purchase our age to come, that we could be with him for the age to come. This age will entrap us and carry us down into the pits of hell if it wasn't for the intervention and deliverance that comes from Jesus. He gave himself for us to bring us back to himself, to save us from that evil age and to redeem us as his own. While we deserved death, he gave us life. God's love for you, God's love for you is too great to be limited by what you deserve. God's love for you is too great to be limited to what you deserve. And I I hope you're listening and, and you're feeling your spirit churning inside of you. If you're a believer, I hope you're feeling kind of that churning of, blessing and and receiving a gift, that you're remembering your first love and how sweet it is to be loved so well and to be given such grace. And if you're not a Christian, I hope you're feeling the churning of the Spirit that says, I need something that I don't have. And that rings true, that the age is evil and that I am a wrongdoer and that I need salvation from my guilt and my shame, and it is available to you. I hope you're wondering, how can I be saved? How can I have this? How can I get it? Well, what do, you, what do you do with a gift? You receive it. It's being offered to you, held out to you. So receive it by faith. It is by grace you are saved through faith. Faith is the receiving. Faith is believing that Jesus is your salvation. It's your confidence and absolute certainty that Jesus is your only hope. Would you today confess Jesus as your Savior? Do you believe that he did what we've said here, that, he's, that he did what he's said here? Do you believe that he has done everything needed for your salvation? My, my request to you my instruction, maybe, my biblical instruction to you is to call out to him. If, if you're wondering, can I be saved? Yes, call out to him. And, and, and honestly, if you don't hear another word I'm saying because you're praying and you're, you're saying, God, I want you, I need you, I want you to, to take control, then I'm cool if you don't hear another word I'm saying. That's great. But tell him you trust him alone for your salvation. Right? There's no magic phrase or prayer, but God knows your heart. He knows your desire. He knows your hope. So call out to him now. Call out to Jesus. He did it all. He gave himself as a gift for your salvation. And that gift is a result of his grace. It's because of God's nature that he gives himself and of himself. Which leads us to verse 5. Verse 5 says this. To whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. We need the whole 3 through 5 to really fill that again. Let's do that. Read with me verse 3. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us 
from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul ascribes glory to God. Verse 5 is all about God's glory. To him be the glory forever and ever. Who deserves it? Who deserves it today? Who deserves it tomorrow? Who will always deserve it? Who does it belong to? Who does glory belong to? Psalm 29, 1 through 2 tells us where to attribute glory and strength. Look at this with me. Psalm 29, 1 through 2, it says, ascribe. And ascribe is a word that means to give credit or to recognize the source of something. Psalm 29 says, ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. To whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. We look at God who is gracious to us and has given himself as a gift to us. And what can we do but praise him? This is the spirit-led response to our salvation. When the Spirit dwells in you, when the Spirit, when you are filled with the Spirit, this is the Spirit-led response to God's grace and peace. We glorify Him. We, as, we ascribe to Him what is already His. When we glorify God, we give to Him what already belongs to Him. We're not giving Him something new, something He didn't have before. We're just giving Him credit for what is His. We're saying, yes, that is who God is. So for us to recognize and attribute God's glory to him is basically God giving a gift to himself. It's like a mom buying her own birthday present, wrapping it, and then letting her son give it to her. That's what it is when we praise God. Because where does, the, where does your praise come from? Does it come from the pits of your sin? It comes from the merciful grace of God, the beautiful grace of God. It's from, it's from the depths of grace that you're able to praise God for who he is. And recognize him in all of his beauty. Our ability to praise God and give him glory is completely and wholly from him. To say, as Paul does, that all glory belongs to him forever and ever. Amen. This is for our good. How sweet is our God that he wants to build a relationship with us. That's what this is. This is relationship building. That God is saying, hey, I'll give you a gift to give to me. I'll let you know about me so that you can appreciate and enjoy me. I'll give you something that I enjoy. You think about all the sacrifices of the Old Testament. Where did those animals come from? It wasn't because they were great farmers, or I guess you call farmers people who have animals. It's not because we have great farmers. Sorry. It's not that we have great farmers. It's because God is good that there were animals to sacrifice. It's not because we're great praise makers that there's praise to give to God, it's because God is worthy. He's teaching us, he's training us, he's interacting with us, and he is kindly and gently reminding us along the way that our relationship is 100% dependent on him. And that is a good thing. Because if it was 1% dependent on you, you would mess it up. So we rest in knowing that he is in control. His love for us is the only reason we can know him or love him. We, we love because he first loved us. 
His love for us is the reason that we can talk to him. His love for us is the only reason we can ascribe glory to his name. It's the only reason that we can join the angels. I think about right there at the beginning of Luke when the angels say glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those whom he is pleased. We can sing with the angels, and I think even better, it's the only reason we can glorify him as children. Glory to God in the highest, to my Father, forever and ever. There is no end to his reign. There is no challenge to his power. There is no secret hidden from his view. There is no lost soul too far gone for his mercy. There is no uncertainty in his mind. There is grace, and there is peace, and there is joy, and there is hope, and there is love. Paul loves this Galatian church. And from the beginning, he is setting the foundation of the gospel. That his love for them flows out of God's love for him. If your spirit is stirring and you've called out to God or you want to, and you want to be saved, I want to ask you this. Be brave enough to tell somebody. Maybe the person next to you, if you came with someone that you know, talk to that person. If that person's a Christian, they're going to be excited. And if it's not somebody you know, come see me. I'm going to be in the back. I'll be between those big double doors back there, and I'd love to talk to you. Just kind of head out and see me. We want to rejoice with you. We want to glorify God with you because he's a God who gave grace, who gives grace, who gives peace, who is a a gift to us. Church, let's praise God. We're going to pray together here and we're going to sing. And let's praise this God who is so good to us. Will you pray with me? Father, every time I come to your word, I'm just freshly reminded of, of your love for me and how your love for me stirs such a love in me for you. I thank you for your word. Thank you even for this introduction, this idea of grace and peace as essential elements of who we are as your children. I thank you for making a way for us to be your children through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. God, I pray that if there are some here today or watching online who don't know you, that your spirit would draw them. God, you are the best thing. There's nothing that compares. Thank you for what you've done for us. Thank you for today, that even this, the church gathered, is something that you've done for us. God, we're so grateful for this. Help us to love each other well. Help us to love you best. Christ in your name.